Daniel Webster said this about Scripture, I believe that the Bible is to be understood and received in the plain and obvious meaning of its passages. For I cannot persuade myself that a book intended for the instruction and conversion of the whole world should cover its true meaning in any such mystery and doubt that none but critics and philosophers can discover it. Gabriel is listed in Jewish literature as one of the seven archangels, holding the highest rank after Michael. In scripture, he's instrumental in the most momentous divine interventions to explain great events in the ongoing kingdom immortality plan of the God of Israel, our Father. First Chronicles 29, verse 10. Gabriel, which means man of God, appears in Daniel 8, verses 15 and following, to interpret the dramatically interesting vision of the end time concerning the ram and goat. And again in Daniel 9, verse 21 and following, in response to Daniel's impassioned plea to the God of Israel for restoration of the city and people of Israel. In the New Testament, Gabriel foretells the birth of John the Baptist to his father Zechariah and follows this up with his astonishing visit to the probably 13 or 14-year-old Jewish girl, Mariam, the one who is distinguished by being the only human female to conceive a son without a human father, and who rightly sang, The Mighty One has done great things for me. But Gabriel's concise, information-packed messages have been clouded and obfuscated by the oceans of confusing words written to expand them. I hope that the following will dispel some of the gloom, and I offer these remarks aware that other systems have been proposed. The major deterrent to getting Gabriel's words clear is, I think, failure to recognize Daniel's vision of the kingdom of God and above all, a large-scale rejection of Jesus as Son of God and his replacement by God the Son. What then did that magnificent super-being have to say to us as one commissioned to minister to the heirs of salvation in the kingdom? See Hebrews 1 verse 14. In Daniel 9, Daniel has discovered Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70 years during which Jerusalem is to lie desolate. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, not the fictitious pseudo-Daniel of the second century substituted by so many liberal scholars, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Daniel 9, verses 1 to 2. Discovering this precious information, Daniel resolved to pray the great prayer of chapter 9. He begged God to fulfill his undertaking to restore Jerusalem, the capital city of the kingdom and the people of Israel. Daniel 9, verses 9 to 14. Probably about 67 years of the allotted punishment had elapsed 
It was 538 BC, 67 years after Daniel himself had been deported to Babylon in 605. Here's what Daniel had read. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of Babylon, for their guilt, and will make it desolate forever. That's Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. More specifically, this is what Yahweh says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 to 14. I stress the background to the marvelous revelation given by Gabriel because it bears directly on the way we read the 77s, Hebrew word there is Shavuim, the 77s prophecy. Not strictly 70 weeks, but 70 units of seven defined by the context. The question at hand and the prayer of Daniel concern the restoration of Israel and its capital. Granted that the revelation of Gabriel has information about the first coming of Messiah and his atoning death, nevertheless the overarching parallel between the 70 years of captivity about to end when Daniel prayed and the promise of a 7 times 70 period of 490 years or 10 jubilee periods of 49 years must always be kept in mind. The first consideration, if we are not to misunderstand Gabriel, is that the principal topic of both the prayer and its answer in the revelation of the angel is the restoration of the people of Israel and of the city of Jerusalem. Such a prophecy cannot, I think, possibly be rightly understood if it is to end with the destruction of Jerusalem. The real terminus is parallel to the terminus of the 70 years prophecy out of which it arises. And thus, whenever the 490 years are over, it will be time for restoration and national restoration, including the city of Jerusalem. To think otherwise suggests that we are using a more allegorical method by which words do not have their primary grammatical meaning. That method is alien to our pre-millenarian reading of eschatology, which takes literally the restoration of the land to Abraham and his seed. Though allegorically Paul can speak of Sarah and Hagar as symbols of two covenants, 
In the case of Daniel 9, verses 23 to 27, there is no such suggestion. We are to think politically of the great terminus to which all the prophecies of Daniel lead, and indeed the whole Bible, the restoration of Acts 3, verse 21, the apocatastasis, which is the putting back in order of everything about which the prophets spoke. This prospect has been the lifeblood of Abrahamic Christians. I think that on this point the dispensationalists have a lesson to teach us. They are staunch supporters of the futurist reading of Daniel 9, 24-27. It is at Dallas Theological Seminary that they insist that the kingdom is going to be restored literally to Israel and Jerusalem and that that kingdom will be on this planet. Tragically, though, having gained that insight, they have then confused and obscured it by offering two separate salvation programs for Israel and the Church, thus restricting the kingdom on earth and, worst of all, the kingdom gospel or the gospel of the kingdom, restricting that to Jews, making Jesus a preacher of the kingdom to Jews only, and saying that Paul introduced a different death and resurrection gospel for non-Jews. But this is to shatter the unity of the New Testament and make Paul contradict the Great Commission. Did not Jesus say effectively, Go everywhere and preach the gospel of the kingdom which I preach to Jews, to everyone? Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Acts 20, verses 24 and 25, obviously, as F.F. F. Bruce confirms, tell us that the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is identical with the gospel of grace. Not so Dr. Swindoll's massive Understanding Christian Theology, written in 2003, which omits all reference to Acts 20, verse 25, the kingdom gospel but is keen to tell us about the gospel of grace in verse 24. I will not deal in detail with the historical part of Gabriel's words. The terminus from which we begin, the 490 years, is the decree to rebuild the city, and from that date until the arrival of Mashiach Nagid, Prince Messiah, will be 483 years, as to say 62 plus seven, or sixty-nine sevens. Most interestingly, Gabriel continues by saying not in the seventieth seven, the next events will occur, but after the sixty-nine sevens. This clue hints at the chronological gap which is to be placed between the week sixty-nine and the seventieth week. That view is by no means odd since the original words of Gabriel were that 70 weeks have been cut off or even cut out for the events of the prophecy. Clearly God does not tell us about every year of the history of Israel, but he has chosen to pick out from history 77s of crucially important time. 
And what could be more significant than the date of the first coming of Jesus and then that critical last period leading up to his second coming and the final restoration of Israel under the kingdom of the saints. With the earliest premillenarian church fathers who wrote on the end times, I take the end of the 490 years to be the final week of this present evil age, to be followed by the restoration of Israel and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, which in a Danielic context is the kingdom of God worldwide at the Parousia. All the other four great prophecy chapters end with the glorious coming kingdom on earth, and so I think does chapter 9. To end it in around AD 33, where no certainty over chronology is anyway possible, and then to extend it another 40 years to AD 70, seems to many of us to be highly problematic. Would that not turn the whole thing into a 70 weeks plus 40 years prophecy? I think that the weight of exegetical evidence leans heavily in favor of the so-called futurist reading of Gabriel's words, Israel was used to sabbatical weeks of years and was also taught to think of a final jubilee after 49 years. Gabriel then suggests strongly that the ultimate jubilee will begin at the end of the 490 years when the 10 times 49 periods will be over and it will be time for celebration and final restoration. A promise of sevenfold punishment will be fulfilled. Jerusalem will be forever free. Jesus came to announce that famous jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord, the coming kingdom. Luke 4 verse 19. Gabriel informs us of six major accomplishments in the allotted period of 490 years. Your people and your city are the first beneficiaries of this amazing prophecy. Though it is true in the New Testament that some of the statements about Israel are fulfilled in the church, it is also equally true that God has not forsaken forever the national Jew. Daniel is concerned about the ruined city and the sanctuary, and Gabriel points to the end of trouble for city and sanctuary, a process which along the way includes the coming and the death of the Messiah for sin. Transgression is to be finished, sin is to have an end, and wickedness is to be atoned for. Those are the first three of the six events predicted. Then come three more directed to the kingdom of God to bring in everlasting righteousness, the righteousness of the ages, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy place. This will be the complete answer to Daniel's prayer for his people and the city. Certainly an atonement for sin has been made. But Israel remains in rebellion until finally her remnant welcomes the Messiah at his return. 
He will then reign in righteous judgment over the whole earth, and Israel's sin will be no more. Righteousness is characteristic of the coming age of the kingdom of God. The anointing of the most holy place could refer to the millennial temple, or possibly to Jesus himself. When the 490 years of punishment are over, the Abrahamic, Davidic, and Jesuanic covenants will reach their final goal. Both the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah will have been accomplished. Until then, we wait, as did Joseph of Arimathea, for the coming of the kingdom on earth. Mark 15, verse 43. Space does not allow for a detailed account of the grammatical issues involved in the still future part of the prophecy in Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27. But I now give you Kyle's translation of the Hebrew, which I think most successfully deals with the detail of the language. An appendix at the end will allow you to look at the reasons for translation at certain points. Kyle's resultant version of the message of Gabriel to Daniel in Daniel 9, 26 and 27 is as follows. The city, together with the sanctuary, shall be destroyed by the people of the prince who shall come, who shall find his end in the flood. But war shall continue to the end, since destruction is irrevocably decreed. That prince shall force a strong covenant for one week on the mass of the people, and during half a week he shall take away the service of sacrifice, and borne on the wings of idle abominations. Compare with that Psalm 18 verse 10, where the true God is also born on wings, shall carry on a desolating rule till the firmly decreed judgment shall pour itself upon him as one desolated. That's from Kyle's commentary on Daniel, page 373. Many versions take the last word to be the desolator, shomem in the Hebrew, but the overall sense is not affected. At all events, the wicked person comes to his final destruction as the 70th week or period of seven years ends. Jesus, in preaching the acceptable year of the Lord as the much-anticipated jubilee or kingdom of God, saw the end of the final heptad and the beginning of the time of final liberation. Never again will Israel trust in the one who struck them. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. Critical in this translation above is the matter of the prince who comes to his end. I think that the obvious antecedent to end is the nearest masculine noun, which is the people or the prince. The death of the wicked person in the final events of the prophecy points definitely to the death of the future Antichrist and not to the events of A.D. 70. 
Furthermore, the language of Daniel 9.27b, a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is found verbatim in the earlier prophecy of Isaiah chapter 10 verses 22 and 23 and compare with that Isaiah 28 verse 22. And Paul takes up that same phrase in Romans 9 verse 28 to tell us about the yet future restoration of a remnant of Israel in the end time. Paul, Daniel, and Isaiah thus seem to agree about the reference of the 70th week to the future. Desolations are coming finally to an end, and the 490 years will be over, just as relief came at least in part to Israel historically at the end of the 70 years of desolation under Babylon. Of course, the 42 months, or 1260 days, time, times, and half a time, mentioned five times in Revelation, I think this has its source in Daniel and the final half of that 70th heptad. This is its obvious location. Jesus and John, in other words, are reading the 70th week as future to us. Jesus also reads the abomination of desolation, located in Daniel's 70th week, as an event initiating the final great tribulation immediately prior to the second coming. Matthew 24, verse 21, and verses 29 to 31. If this is right, then we may expect a concentrated time of great tribulation. Matthew 24, verse 21, which is the equivalent and equal to Daniel 12, verse 1. That tribulation in Israel will be ended by the coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the faithful of all the ages to the life of the age to come. The Chaye Olam of Daniel 12, verse 2. What a blessed privilege to be allowed in on the secret of God's marvelous working in our world as we, so to speak, track with his immortality restoration program. Truly, as David sang in Psalm 25, verse 14, God will make known his covenant to those with whom he shares his intimate counsel. And all this reminds us of the parable of the sower and the priceless pearl, understanding the mystery of the kingdom without which life is ultimately meaningless. Gabriel's visit to Mary. Luke 1, verse 35. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born, or rather begotten, as the Revised Version has it, will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. Six hundred years later, Gabriel was dispatched to a city in Galilee. Six hundred years later, Gabriel was dispatched to a city in Galilee called Nazareth.
to a virgin engaged to be married to a man of the royal house of David, and the virgin's name was Mariam. A number of commentators suggest that the phrase of the descendants of David refers to Mary, who is the main subject of Luke 1, verses 27 and 28. The Roman Catholic expositors, despite their excessive admiration for Mary, and coupled with the misleading idea that souls are immortal, and thus that Mary must be alive and able to intercede with her son, who they say is actually God, have done brilliant work in giving the sense of these beautiful and wonderful words of Gabriel. I should mention, however, that they distorted the biblical portrait of Mary badly when they insisted that she never intended to have any children and thus had no children by Joseph and that Jesus had cousins and not brothers and sisters. Raymond Brown's highly acclaimed The Birth of the Messiah and Joseph Fitzmyer's commentary on Luke in the Anchor Bible series provide an excellent exposition of the Annunciation to Mary and completely undermine the doctrine of the Incarnation of a second member of the Trinity. See also the excellent confirmation of so-called Socinian Christology in Karl Josef Kuschel's tome, Born Before All Time, The Dispute Over Christ's Origin, and also the Abrahamic Christology of James Dunn in regard to Paul in his Christology in the Making, a New Testament inquiry into the origins of the doctrine of the Incarnation, written in 1980. The Roman Catholics are leading the field by far in exposing the true origin of the Trinity as post-biblical. For example, and this is still only in German, Karl-Heinz Ohlich's Ein Gott in drei Personen vom Vater Jesu zum Mysterium der Trinität. One God in Three Persons from the Father of Jesus to the Mystery of the Trinity, written in 2000. This latter is a kind of German equivalent to Dr. Rubenstein's When Jesus Became God, the epic fight over Christ's divinity in the last days of Rome, written in 1999. How thankful I am for the concise, to-the-point, no-nonsense communication of the angel to Mary. In 18 Greek words, Luke 1, verse 35, Gabriel, if anyone bothers to listen to him carefully, has demolished the incarnation, which is supposed to be the hallmark of true Christianity, and in so doing has offered us a giant step forward towards the uniting of Muslims, Jews, and Christians in the belief that God is truly one, the Hebrew word echad, which is the Hebrew cardinal numeral one. I believe that we have here, in Luke 1.35, a transparently simple proposition with staggering implications 
as a corrective of hallowed misconceptions about God the Son, a non-existent figure for Gabriel. I had no idea of the treasure lying in this verse until over some months and years I began reading everything I could find on it. Joseph Fitzmaier, the Roman Catholic expositor, makes an amazing admission about what the Church has done by way of blocking the precious information given by the angel. In his massive commentary on Luke, in the Anchor Bible series, he first confirms what is obvious to any reader, that the mention of Holy Spirit means that God is here engaging in creative activity. God's creative and active power present to human beings. The parallelism is reminiscent of Hebrew poetry. Power and spirit are used in conjunction. With this observation about Holy Spirit, no definite article there, and power of the highest being synonymous and parallel statements, Fitzmaier undoes centuries of tangled orthodox argumentation which sought to uphold the idea that the power of the highest was in fact the second member of the Trinity, the Son, bringing about his own incarnation, uniting himself with so-called human nature, assuming, as they eventually said, impersonal human nature. With this amazing twist of Gabriel's words, the personality of Jesus became the subject of endless complex wrangles and disputations and some very cruel treatment of dissenters. Fitzmaier's amazing and revealing admission about the damage the Church has done to Luke 1.35 deserves the widest press. Later church tradition, he says, has made something quite other out of this verse in Luke 1.35. In other words, the church has demolished the truth of Gabriel's Christological revelation and hidden the biblical Christ. The expression later church tradition is a seemingly innocent reference to the fact that the Bible was abandoned by that later tradition. We may well ask, how did the church, to use Fitzmaier's words, how did the church make something quite other out of this verse? Fitzmaier says, Justin Martyr in 150 AD wrote, It is not right, therefore, to understand the Spirit and the power of God as anything else than the Word, with a capital W, who is also the first begotten of God. In this interpretation, the two expressions are being understood of the second person of the Trinity. It was, however, scarcely before the fourth century that the Holy Spirit was understood as the third person. It is moreover to be noted that there is no evidence here in the Lucan infancy narrative of Jesus' pre-existence or incarnation. Luke's sole concern 
is to assert that the origin of God's Messiah is the effect of his creative spirit on Mary. Wow! Firstly, there was no trinity before the 4th century. And secondly, Justin has so misread Gabriel's words as to make the pre-existing son the engineer of his own conception. We have entered a world of fantasy, which tragically later became permanently enshrined in inflexible dogma. The son, so taught Justin, came over Mary, and the son took on flesh in the womb. The son, according to Justin Martyr, came through and not from Mary. But this is exactly what the Gnostics were saying also. The son came through Mary as water through a pipe. That's a quotation from the Valentinian or Gnostic view that Mary was only a place of passage, a channel for Christ. By saying that the Son was the power of the highest, Jesus was his own father, and the Son is older than his mother, meaning that he is no longer the descendant and offspring of David or of Eve or even of Mary. God's superlative act in the creation of the new man, the second Adam, is buried in an incomprehensible account of a pre-existing son taking on so-called impersonal human nature. But how can one pre-exist oneself? How can you be before you are? And can the same line begin from two different points? Surely a single person can have only one origin. If you are pre-human, you cannot also be human. If no new person comes into existence in Mary, then the lineal descendant of David is obliterated and replaced by an extraordinary hybrid, a hybrid God-man, or as the Jehovah's Witnesses think, an angel-man. In neither case is this a human being, nor the blood descendant of David. Thus, while it pays lip service to the royal son of David, the dogma of the Incarnation makes a human Messiah, Jesus, impossible. Is orthodoxy, then, in fact, an attenuated form of Gnosticism in regard to the person of Jesus? Though the Church rejected the blatant Gnosticism, which said that Jesus was not human at all, did it not in fact embrace a milder form of Gnosticism? I note here the comment of Kurt Rudolf in his book Gnosis, The Nature and History of Gnosticism, written in 1983. He said this, The early Christian fathers foremost Irenaeus and Tertullian, strove hard to find forms which make intelligible in a non-Gnostic sense the prevailing division of the one Jesus Christ. Strictly speaking, they did not succeed. Already Harnack was forced to say, who can maintain that the Church ever 
overcame the Gnostic doctrine of the two natures or the Valentinian Docetism. Even the later councils of the Church, which discussed the Christological problems in complicated and nowadays hardly intelligible definitions, did not manage to do this. The unity of the Church founded precisely on this. It has often been forgotten that Gnostic theologians saw Christ as consubstantial with the Father before ecclesiastical theology established this as a principle in order to preserve his full divinity. In our time, the result of this development emerges when Chuck Swindoll quotes with approval Max Lucado's statement that Mary changed God's diapers, or the Catholic priest's assertion that God came to Mary and said, Will you please be my mother? Gabriel's statement is as concise as it is beautiful and logical. Therefore, the Holy One to be begotten will be called the Son of God. Luke 1 verse 35. Roman Catholic Fitzmaier comments, Therefore, in the Greek, theoke expresses a causal connection between the virginal conception and the divine sonship. It is another indication that Luke does not have a notion of Jesus' pre-existence. Raymond Brown is equally candid. He says, Matthew and Luke press the question of Jesus' identity back to Jesus' conception. In the commentary, I shall stress that Matthew and Luke show no knowledge of pre-existence. Seemingly for them, the conception was the becoming or the coming into existence or begetting of God's Son. That's from Raymond Brown's book on the birth narratives, page 31. He goes on, the reader should not assume that either Matthew or Luke has developed a theory of the Spirit as a person, much less the third person of the Trinity. Behind such a conception would be images of the Spirit as God-given breath of life, as in Genesis 1 and Psalm 104, verse 30. Matthew 27, verse 50, as the force which moved the prophets to speak as in Matthew 22, verse 43, and as the animating principle of Jesus' ministry, which descended on him at baptism and was communicated by him to his followers after the resurrection, as in John 20, verse 22, and Acts 1, verse 8. Early English Protestant Bibles capitalized neither the word holy nor spirit. The Reims Catholic edition capitalized both. The authorized version, the King James Version, capitalized only spirit until the 18th century. Luke 1.35, the word therefore of the nine times 
the okay, therefore, occurs in the New Testament. Three are in Luke and Acts. This involves a certain causality. And Lyonnais, in his work L'Annonciation, points out that this has embarrassed many orthodox theologians because in pre-existence Christology, a conception by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb does not bring about the existence of God's Son. Luke is apparently unaware of such a Christology. Conception is causally related to divine sonship for him. That's a quotation from Raymond Brown's book on the birth narratives, page 291. Gabriel, in Luke 1.35, as a master systematic theologian, provides in 18 words, in Luke 1.35, a sufficient explanation of what Son of God means, and this could have prevented centuries of unresolved argument about who Jesus is. Luke, Gabriel, and Mary could not possibly have been either Jehovah's Witnesses or so-called Orthodox Christians. They did not, in other words, believe in the Trinity. They understood the Son to be a created being, thus committing unspeakable heresy against what later was deemed to be essential orthodoxy. Luke, Gabriel, and Mary, let it be made clear, could not have signed present doctrinal statements and could not have come under the umbrella of what is now considered to be orthodox. John, of course, belonged to the same school of thought, as did Jesus. Jesus is reported as saying constantly that God was his Father and that God, and I quote here, had made him holy and sent him into the world. John 10 verse 36, which is no different from Peter's teaching that God had raised up Jesus and sent him. Acts 3 verse 26, I note that John the Baptist was equally sent from God. John 1 verse 6. Raised him up, those words, refer to the divine begetting and sending means commissioning him to preach the kingdom, not sending him from a pre-existent life in heaven. In both cases, the Son is first created by God and then dispatched on his life-saving mission to the world. And all this is exactly the view introduced by Gabriel. The Son of God is a created being. Until the King James Version added to the text in Acts 13.33 the word again, it would have been quite clear that Paul applied the famous Today I've begotten you text, which he cites from Psalm 2.7 to the creation of the Son in time. Verse 34, by contrast, describes his raising from the dead. The Dead Sea Scrolls tell us in 1 Q Samuel 2.11 that
the charter for Israel in the last days, that God is expected to father or beget the Messiah. Compare with that Psalm 110 verse 3 in the Septuagint. There was definitely a time, and here Arius was right, although the moment of time he referred to was not in line with Luke 1. There was a time when the sun did not literally exist. There was a time, only some 2,000 years ago, when the sun was miraculously begotten in the human biological chain, thus being the descendant, not the ancestor of Eve, and the descendant of Abraham and David, biologically, via Nathan, son of David, as in Luke chapter 1. The son of Mary is thus not an impersonal human nature of the Trinitarian theology, but a lineal descendant of Adam and David, with God as his father and creator. The God of Israel is thus the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as our Father of the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus, if you had met him personally, would assure you that he had no Father except God. That gets my attention. The church-going world seems not to ponder the impossible notions introduced by the doctrine of the Incarnation which resembles transmigration or transmutation rather than the creation of a unique human being, the Son of God. Historians have documented for us the process by which Jesus became God. Before Dr. Rubenstein invited the public to look at the facts, Harnack had pointed out that pre-existence and virginal conception or begetting are mutually exclusive ideas which cannot be harmonized. Harnack said in his History of Dogma, the miraculous genesis of Christ in the Virgin by the Holy Spirit and the pre-existence are, of course, mutually exclusive. At a later period, Harnack also says it's true, it became necessary to unite them in thought. That's from Harnack's History of Dogma, Volume 1, English translation. The Church had for centuries glossed over the contradiction. Later, Pannenberg made the same point. It is indeed compatible with the idea of a sonship existing formally, that it only became effective and was revealed at a particular definite point in the life of Jesus. However, it, that's to say, pre-existence, is irreconcilable with this, that the divine sonship as such was first established in time. Sonship cannot, at the same time, consist in pre-existence and still have its origin only in the divine procreation of Jesus in Mary. That's from Pannenberg's book, Jesus, God and Man, pages 141 and following. 
In other words, you cannot be eternally begotten as son and also be begotten in the days of Herod. Pannenberg contested Barth's efforts to make the virgin birth fit with the incarnation. He said the virgin birth is precisely not the sign of the secret of the incarnation of the pre-existent Son of God. It does not point towards the secret, but stands in contrast to it in its conceptual structure. Luke 1.35 and Daniel 9 verses 24 to 27 have a wonderful future when eyes are open to the staggering implications of God's gracious messages to us as mediated by the angel Gabriel, whose voice needs to be heard in our times. When vast blocks of humanity, Jews, Muslims, Orthodox Catholics and Protestants are divided over who God is and who the Son is in relation to the one God, our Father. I hope that a Christological revolution may be at hand and a return to the God of Israel and his Messiah, Jesus. We should surely employ the wonderful tools of communication available in the Internet age to alert the public to the damage which has been done to God's messengers and their message. We may have to take some risks because, as Voltaire said, it is dangerous to be right in matters on which the established authorities are wrong. But Canon Guji's dictum about what happened to Christianity serves as a watchword and encouragement. He was alerting us to the catastrophe that occurred when the Jewish background to the New Testament was abandoned by philosophically-minded theologians. He said, the great people of God's choice were soon the people least adequately represented in the Catholic Church. That was a disaster to the Church itself. It meant that the Church as a whole failed to understand the Old Testament and that the Greek mind and the Roman mind in turn. Appendix, Daniel 9 and verse 26, His End. I start with this. Jesus puts the abominable horror in the future yet. In Daniel's 70th week, the abomination will be set. That the 70th week is future, therefore, let us not forget. A key to understanding. I read now from the New Jerusalem Bible on Daniel 9.26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be put to death, and the city and sanctuary ruined by a prince who is to come. The end of that prince will be catastrophe, and until the end there will be war and all the devastation decreed. The Einheitsübersetzung in 1980, Daniel 9:26. Translation there, he will find his end in the flood. The French Jerusalem Bible, Daniel 9:26. Translation there, a prince who will come, his end will be in the cataclysm. Traduction Ecumenique de la Bible, 
of 1988. Daniel 9:26. Translation there, a prince to come will destroy them, but his end will come. And then the Bible en français courant of 1997, Daniel 9:26. Translation there, however, this ruler will come to his end. Above, we made mention of the translation in some versions, which goes as follows. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary, and its end will come in the flood. Daniel 9, verse 26. The Kyle commentary on Daniel translates, as does the Revised Version, the Jerusalem Bible, the Jewish Publication Society, Old Testament, the International Critical Commentary on Daniel, Peake's Commentary, and so on. They translate Daniel 9.26 as, And his end will come in the flood. The reference is taken to be to the evil prince who is to come, who destroys the city and sanctuary. Kyle says, The suffix his refers simply to the hostile prince, whose end is emphatically placed in contrast to his coming. Preconceived views as to the historical interpretation of the prophecy lie at the foundation of all other references. That's from Kyle's commentary on Daniel, page 363. In other words, translations which avoid the reference to the wicked prince and his end do so because they think that the prophecy ought to refer to the Roman invasion of A.D. 70. Titus did not come to his end in that event. Now this is no small matter. If the translation, his end, is correct, Daniel 9 verse 26 cannot possibly have been fulfilled in A.D. 70 one of the traditional evangelical views, because Titus did not come to his end in that episode in AD 70. I think then that the translation his, not its, end is right for these reasons. Number one, it is supported by commentaries that deal with the detail of the language minutely. Kyle is typical of these. Number two, the nearest singular masculine antecedent for the reference his or its end is the prince and his people, not the city or sanctuary. Number three, if the city and sanctuary were meant, and these words are further away, the text should read their end. Number four, the Hebrew his end has a masculine singular suffix, and cannot agree with the city, which is feminine, or with the plural city and sanctuary. Number five. Most significant of all, the Hebrew word for end, ketz, never in 70 occurrences refers to the destruction of a thing. It refers to the end of a period of time and often to the end of the life. That's to say, the lifetime of a person. Even in Daniel alone, Daniel 11.45 speaks of 
his end, meaning the end of the final ruler, an obvious parallel with our verse in 9.26. And Daniel is told to go to the end, that's to say the end of his life, in Daniel 12 verse 13. In addition, the end of human life is one of the main meanings of Ketz, as in Jeremiah 51 verse 13, your end means the end of your days. Lamentations 4.18, our end drew near, meaning our days were finished. Job 6 verse 11, my end means the end of my life. Psalm 39 verse 4, my end means the extent of my days. Also Genesis 6 verse 13, the end of all flesh. Number six, Brown Driver and Briggs' lexicon of the Hebrew Bible renders Kitzo as his end on page 893. Number seven, Driver in his commentary, Cambridge Bible for Schools, renders his end. Number eight, the Jewish Publication Society translation has his end. I believe, therefore, that Kyle is right when he says that the translation, its end, that is, the city's end, is incorrect. The right translation, based on the immediate context, the antecedent is the prince, and the consistent meaning of ketz, which never refers to the ruin or destruction of a thing, but rather the end of a period of time, and especially the end of human life, is and I quote, he will come to his end, his death. In Daniel 9.26, we have a clear reference to a future Antichrist. I maintain, therefore, with many commentators, that Daniel 9, verse 26, cannot be a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, because Titus, the leader of the attack, did not come to his end in that event. But the evil ruler will come to his end, according to Daniel 11.45, and this will happen in the Holy Land just before the resurrection in Daniel 12, verse 2. For further confirmation, I wrote to a distinguished Hebraist under whose teaching I sat at the University of Jerusalem in 1970. Dr. Muraoka said, I quote, since the words city and sanctuary are of mixed genders, one feminine and the other masculine, it would be difficult to know what the impersonal reference of the pronoun is. I think that the interpretation which you propose is the most obvious. I note finally also that the comment in Lang's commentary on Daniel goes as follows. The suffix in his end doubtless refers to the prince. The subject of he shall confirm a covenant is beyond all question the evil prince, which governs the preceding sentence as a logical subject and is finally included in his end and is the prominent subject of consideration from verse 26 
B.